passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. All right, so this morning we are turning our attention back to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 14, verses 22 through 25. Uh, this is um, the, the Lord's Supper. This is the Last Supper, uh, where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. Um, it is, if you're familiar with the church, it is a, um, a, a ritual or, or a tradition um, that is it's based off of this passage. It's one that's it's, uh, probably something you're familiar with. In fact, uh, I grew up in the church, and I... When I became a pastor, one of the biggest concerns I had was um, stressing out about the right language the first time I had to, to administer communion. Was I going to be able to say the right words or was I going to screw this thing up? And I was shocked at how easily it came to me because I'd heard it for decades. Um, the, the phrases that, that we say on a consistent basis as we approach the Lord's table. It's something that many of us are likely familiar with, but... What if we are new to the church? Or what if it is something that we, um, we're not familiar with? Uh, N.T. Wright, he's a theologian, um, and, and he has a book called uh, The Meal Jesus Gave Us. And in that, he gives us this really helpful illustration of the uniqueness of this celebration. So I want you to imagine that you have been invited to a five-year-old's birthday party, Okay. Uh, you've been invited to a five-year-old's birthday party, but there's just one wrinkle. You have never celebrated a birthday before. You've never been to a birthday party. You have no idea even what a birthday is. And so when you arrive, you come into the house and you immediately have questions. Luckily, there's someone else in the room that you know. And so you begin to ask them questions. You say, okay, wh what's going on here? And they respond, well, it's, it's her birthday. And your response, of course, is, well, that's impo impossible. She's too big, right? She, she's too big to have just been born. Well, of, of course not. She was born five years ago. Well, then you respond, well, what's so special about that, that she was born on this day five years ago? Uh, response, well, we, we do this every year. That's just, just what we do. Okay, but why are people giving her stuff? Well, that's just what you do on a birthday. It's what we do to show people that they are special. Okay, well, why are people wearing cones on their heads? Well, again, that's, that's another part of the way that we make this a special day. Those are just the hats that you wear. Okay, but why are people lighting the cake on fire? Well, they're not lighting the cake on fire. They're lighting candles on top of the cake. Well, why are there candles on the cake? There's plenty of light here. We don't need candles. And it goes on and on and on and as the conversation goes you probably grow more and more confused by this thing that at least for most of us is just second nature because it's something that we are familiar with right it's a it's a celebration and really all forms of celebration all forms of ritual uh, it doesn't matter if it is fireworks on independence day burgers on Memorial Day, Turkey on Thanksgiving, Easter lilies on Easter Sunday. All of these things, uh, they might be second nature to us, but for those who are uh, not a part of those traditions, those who are outsiders, they can be head scratchers to say the least. And I wonder how often that's the case with us and the Lord's Supper, that we're very familiar, that we can see the ritual, but have we ever asked the question why? 
Why is it that we do the things that we do when it comes to the Lord's Supper? We can even take these symbols for granted, and that can certainly be the case with the Lord's Supper, communion, whatever you call it, based off of your tradition. So here's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to just take a few moments to consider the Lord's table, and I'm going to call it the Lord's table there, um, and, and I'll come back to that here in a second. I want us to consider three questions. First, why are there so many beliefs surrounding the Lord's table? Second, what is the Passover? And third, what does the Lord's table mean? What does this meal mean that we have over here? And as we approach this topic, I want to be abundantly clear uh, of what the, the focus of this passage, Mark 14, 23, 25, what the purpose of this passage is. The Lord's table is an invitation for anyone anyone, everyone to come and feast on the grace of God. That's really what this passage is about. That's what this table is about. It is an invitation to come feast on the grace of God. This morning, we're going to be going through a lot of Old Testament background. Don't get bogged down in the details and miss that truth, that the Lord's table is an invitation to come and feast on the incredible grace of God. Remember what we looked at last week as we were um, in Mark 14? We actually looked at Mark 14, 12 through 31. As we looked at, at this section as a whole, one of the things that we saw is the Lord's Supper here, 22 through 25, is actually sandwiched in between two other sections of Mark's gospel, two predictions from Jesus surrounding the Lord's Supper, talking about his disciples, and how they will fail him, how they will betray him, how they will abandon him. And yet, by putting the Lord's Supper in the middle of these two predictions, this is an incredible picture of who is invited to come to the table, who is invited to worship Jesus, to fellowship with Jesus, to commune with Jesus. God is telling us who is invited, and it is anyone who needs grace. I don't know about you, but that's certainly true of me this morning. Let's come to the table and feast on the grace of God as, as we turn our attention to God's word. Let's, let's pray. Father, it is uh, the utmost privilege to worship you in so many different ways. We rejoice that you have given your people the gift of music to sing your praises. We ask that the words that we say um, would, would, help, would echo the postures of our hearts. We rejoice that we get to see the commitments of families, and we ask that you would help us to come alongside those families um, in this incredibly important role of, of pointing children to you. And, and God, we know that's worship too. We rejoice that we get to worship you through seating ourselves under your word on, on Sunday mornings. And we rejoice that we get to worship you through the bread and the cup instituted thousands of years ago by your son. And God, as we approach this text, we ask that you would use it to stir our affections for you. God, that you would use this to help us to rejoice that we are invited to the table to feast on the grace of God. We pray these things all in Jesus' name, and we do so expectantly. Amen. All right, well, the topic of communion can be a divisive one. In fact, it's kind of a sad irony that uh, a ritual 
called communion one of the largest areas of division in, in the church and throughout church history. If you have family or friends who are Catholic, you know that the Catholic view of communion very different than the ritual that we do on Sunday mornings. It's, it's hard to stress how much our different theological understandings of the Lord's Supper influence the way that we observe communion. A couple examples. It influences our language. I've referred to this table uh, with the elements on it. I've referred to it as the Lord's table. I'm doing that because it's a neutral term. But other times, we, uh, other, other traditions, um, they'll refer to it as an altar. And that is a theological description of what they are, are saying. We have called it communion. We have called it the Lord's Supper. We have even called it the Eucharist at times, and, and we'll get into those here in a few seconds. Um, I, I want us to, to even look at how uh, our theological understanding of the Lord's Supper, how it even influences architecture. Many of you who have uh, been with us for a while, uh, you know that we share a building with another church, with another uh, denomination, actually, and that church has a very different understanding theologically of the Lord's Supper, and that has influenced some of their architectural decisions. So next time you are in the church facility and you're in the sanctuary, notice the, uh, the engravings on the side of the pews. It is a cup and it is bread. Also, notice what the largest object on the stage is in that facility. It's a large table. It's because of how important communion is to that tradition. And you can, you can look at that in a number of different traditions as well. How our theological understandings of, of this meal and how important it is influences architectural decisions from various churches. We throw in the different names. I mentioned communion is one that we use. Uh, uh, communion comes from Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship or communion, same word there, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Breaking of bread refers to this practice of celebrating with these elements. Others call it the Lord's Supper because even though we celebrate it on Sunday mornings, Jesus instituted it as a supper right before his crucifixion. Other times, people refer to it as the Eucharist. This comes from a Greek word, eucharisteo. Uh, yeah, you can write that one down if you want. Uh, you're not gonna be quizzed on it. Uh, but it just means give thanks. And so this meal is a meal where Jesus gave thanks and we give thanks as well. 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Catholics, they will refer to it as mass, which comes from this Latin phrase that is said to, to refer to the commissioning or the sending out of the people. And ultimately, the name that we don't use doesn't, or the name we use doesn't really matter, at least in those first three, because those are found in Scripture. But the differences of names that we have for this and, and the differences in architecture and, and how often do you practice this and, and what role does it take in the service, all of these things are just the tip of the iceberg on different opinions on this topic. So let's ask ourselves, why are there so many different beliefs surrounding communion? Interpretations across the board. On the one hand, you have someone who, like a friend that I went to seminary with, who firmly believed that the practice involving the bread and the cup wasn't what was important, 
Instead, what was important was the idea of sharing a meal together, like a potluck. And so for him, the, the important thing was, was potlucks. It wasn't actually participating in communion with bread and wine or bread and a juice. On the other hand, you have Catholic understanding of this meal, which says that the bread and the wine become the actual body and blood of Jesus. And on those two extremes, you have interpretations basically at every point in the middle and more. Now, we could go into all of these different things. We could spend a whole lot of time parsing different theological views, their merits, their deficiencies. We're not going to do that. I just want to briefly touch on the Catholic view. Because this is one of the more confusing ones to us as those who are Protestants, a part of a um, what is called a low church view. And that's not a pejorative term. It just means we don't have a lot of liturgy as a part of the evangelical free church of America. What exactly does the Catholic view believe? What exactly um, is taking place here? As, as I mentioned, Catholics believe that during the mass, the priest overseeing the, the elements speaks the words of institution and the bread and, and the cup become the actual body and blood of Jesus. And their, their reasoning comes from Jesus's words here. Mark 14, verse 22. And as they were eating, he took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And it all boils down to this one word, is here. Jesus says, this is my body. And Catholics will interpret that literally. I could, you know, there's a little bit of medieval history involved here. Um, that um, in the medieval times, uh, people believed that there was actually like, uh, there were two natures. There was your outward nature and your inner nature. And so there was this belief that the outward nature stayed the same, but the inner nature of the bread and the wine would change. Now, this is a really confusing interpretation. It's very mystical. I don't want to, to, to make fun of it or, or anything, anything like that. But I do want to say, is that what Jesus is, is talking about? Is that what Jesus is saying here? And, and the answer is not only that this is an unlikely interpretation, it's, it also can't be what Jesus is saying. Three reasons I want to just give us. First is language. The language of this passage. Many of us know New Testament was written in Greek. But Jesus would not have spoken in Greek. He wouldn't have taught in Greek, especially not with his disciples. He was surrounded by people from Israel, those who would have spoken Aramaic. That was the common language of the day. And in, in Aramaic, this phrase would not have contained the word is. Jesus would have something, said something like this, this, my body. So pointing at the bread, this my body. And, and when we su uh, supply the word is here, it becomes a little too formulaic for what Jesus is saying. It becomes a little bit too much of a this is blank or, or something that is equivalent to one another. The bread instead is a metaphor of my body and what is about to happen on your behalf. Second context. We'll just laugh, all right? We can go ahead and laugh, all right? Second is the context. We, look, we will look at this in a moment, but recall that this, is a, this meal is a Passover meal. The Passover celebration has a great deal of things that would be prescribed, or things that you would say in the celebration of the Passover. And at one point, the person who was presiding over the meal of the Passover would hold up the bread, 
And they would say, this is the bread of affliction. It comes from Deuteronomy, I think Deuteronomy chapter 16. Now Jesus doesn't say, this is the bread of affliction, but he does say something very similar, right? Instead of saying, this is the bread of affliction, he says, this is my body. It's clear Jesus is drawing a parallel here. He's building off of the tradition that people would use in that day and age. And, he's, and the common tradition of those people did not believe that the bread that they ate at the Passover meal literally became something that was 1,500 years old or was transformed into something that was 1,500 years old. So context is another reason. Third one, and probably most important, is the text. Uh, strongest evidence, look at the order in verses 23 and 24. And Jesus took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my body, or this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So here we see that Jesus tells his disciples to drink, and then after that, Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant. In other words, what, what's taking place here is the opposite of this, this belief uh, 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 of the process that must take place to transform, or the, the language is transubstantiation, uh, the, the process of transforming the, the bread and the blood into, or the bread and the cup into the actual body and blood of Jesus. If Jesus were actually doing that, he would have said, this is my blood first, and then the disciples would have drank of it. Now, more can be said on this topic. We've spent way more than I actually intended to. Um, we're going to see that the Lord's Supper is intended to be a, a metaphor. That's the important thing to, to notice here. But that leads us to another question. A metaphor of what? What exactly is this a metaphor of? And to answer that question, we have to answer a different question first, all right? And that's our second one. What is the Passover? Remember, Jesus and his disciples, as they are gathered together in this moment in Mark chapter 14, they are celebrating the Passover when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. The Passover, one of the most important holidays of the Jewish faith, annual reminder for the Jewish people that God had delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt. And when you have a chance, sometime today or, or this week, uh, I encourage you to read Exodus chapter 12. Exodus 12 is the, the events that take place thousands of years before Jesus, the accounts of the first Passover. I just want to read just a few verses from Exodus chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night Roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, herbs, they shall eat it. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood... I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. 
So all the way back in Exodus chapter 12, the Hebrew, God gives the Hebrews instructions for the Passover. Not just for that day, but for each year. And then later in Exodus chapter 12, we see God, what God has said is going to happen. It actually happens. Surprise, surprise. God says something's going to happen and it comes to, ha- it comes to pass. The people of Israel are driven out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. They begin journeying through the wilderness. And then they get to Mount Sinai and Mount Horeb. And it's here that God makes a covenant with Israel. Now here's another passage that I encourage you to read later on. Exodus chapter 24. I want to just read a couple excerpts here from verses 3 through 8. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took took half of the blood and put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. That's a very grotesque scene, isn't it? As we consider what is taking place here, it is very grotesque. And yet, it is also one of the most important scenes in Israel's history. It's here, at this moment, when the blood of the covenant, the blood of these animals, is thrown on the altar, and then the rest of it is thrown on the people, where this unbreakable promise between God and Israel is cemented. Israel is now God's people, and God is now their God. And the Passover becomes integrated into the very fabric of the people of Israel and their history. One of the defining factors of the Old Testament and whether the Israelites are being faithful in following God is if they are keeping the Passover or not. And if you've read the Old Testament... You're familiar with it. You know that all too often the people are not faithful in following God. In fact, they are kicked out of Israel. They go, are sent into exile after they become morally bankrupt. And there is this growing expectation from the people that God will one day bring his people back. And this was, began to be wrapped up in the celebration of the Passover. God's people began to realize that God's deliverance from slavery to Egypt wasn't the end, that he was going to deliver them one day totally and fully from the brokenness of this world, establish his kingdom forever. And that's a, that's a theme that the prophets pick up on. A, a large chunk of the Old Testament, they begin to use images of the Exodus Images of how God had delivered them in the past to describe a future deliverance from God. Of how God would deliver them in the future. Just as he did it in the past, he's going to do it again in the future. And every Passover that the people of Israel celebrate each and every year, there is this growing expectation. This growing hunger. That as they look back at how God did it in the past, they look forward longingly to the future saying, God is going to do it again in the future in a final, complete, everlasting deliverance for his people. And it's in that context 
remembering salvation while longing for its full application. God has saved us in the past. God is going to one day save us fully in the future. It's in that context that Jesus has this meal with his disciples. I think it's absolutely astounding that Jesus sits down with his disciples for this Passover together. We see in Mark chapter 14, they're not the only ones who are doing this in Jerusalem. Hundreds of thousands of people have come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And all of those other houses, it was continually looking, looking backward to what God has done and looking forward to what he will one day do, but not fully understanding what that will look like. But in one house, God finally revealed how he was going to accomplish that final redemption with the words that Jesus uses here in Mark chapter 14. I mentioned uh, last week, Passover meal, very liturgical. It was a family affair. There were a number of rituals the family would go through together to remind themselves of the meaning of the Passover. And, and when, I say, when I say it was very liturgical, let me put this into perspective. The meal would start around 6 p.m., and it would get over at midnight, all right? So if you're checking your watch right now to see how much longer we got, uh, we got a ways before we get to that moment uh, in our, uh, our timeline here. There were a number of stages over the course of this meal, and there were speaking parts that different people in the family would have, and the head of the household would have an opportunity to explain at multiple times the, the significance of the Passover to everyone who was there, not just the past significance, but also the future significance of what was waiting for them as well. And this is what happens when Jesus and his disciples sit down in Mark chapter 14 to celebrate the Passover. Jesus is serving as the head of the household here. He would have taught his disciples about the meaning behind the Passover. It was a tradition that, that just before the meal was served, and there were different courses and different parts. Uh, we're not going to get into those details here that just before the meal was served, the head of the house would break bread and give thanks for it and then hand it out to everyone. All right, so this is a common Passover tradition. And that's where Mark picks up on uh, in Mark 14, verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and everything right there, up to that moment, completely normal, completely normal Passover celebration. This is where Jesus says something new and said, take, this is my body. First half of this verse, completely normal, something the disciples would have seen, disciples would have heard each and every Passover, the breaking of the bread, blessing uh, of the bread expected because that was the next part of the Passover celebration. But Jesus doesn't follow the Passover liturgy at this point. The Passover, remember, about God's past deliverance, looking forward to God's future deliverance. And Jesus has just explained the past deliverance to his disciples. And now he makes this incredible claim. As we are looking forward to when God will one day deliver us, Jesus says the first Passover is an echo of what I am about to accomplish through my body and through my blood. Let the weight of that claim sink in. The significance 
of this moment. First Passover. Story from Exodus, God's salvation, defining moment of their religion. Jesus says that is a signpost pointing to the lasting salvation that I will one day bring. Every good Jew would have have longed for the coming of the kingdom of God. Disciples hoped that Jesus would be the one who would bring in that kingdom. Jesus goes a step further. He says that his kingdom will not be accomplished by stepping over the bodies of his slain enemies, but offering up his own body to be slain. Here in this moment, in the Passover, Jesus says, yes, God, God saved us, our people, thousands of years ago. Now he claims that through his body, he will bring a new deliverance, a better deliverance for his people. In every way, the Passover that Jesus offers is better and is superior to that of Exodus. And after that, the meal would have started. And Mark doesn't let us in on on the the conversations, the explanations, the questions. The, The meal that would have taken place at this moment would have been where the Passover lamb was eaten. Notice that Mark doesn't mention that. Mark doesn't mention the Passover lamb, and, and I think it's, it's because it's irrelevant to his teaching about Jesus. And second, it's because of what he is teaching us about Jesus, that Jesus is the true Passover lamb. There would have been a lamb at that meal, but Mark doesn't mention it because he wants us to see that Jesus is the true lamb. A lamb, a Passover without a Passover lamb, unthinkable, but here at this moment, we see that the real Passover lamb is Jesus. And when we begin to grasp that Jesus is the Passover lamb, according to Mark, and we see that here in the gap between verses 22 and verses 23, we begin to see what is about to come in verses 23 and 24. Let's talk briefly about the Passover tradition again. Every single year, the celebration of the Passover, there would be multiple cups. So if you look over here, we have one cup. Every single year, there would have been four cups that the people would have drank from as a part of the celebration of the Passover. And these four cups would correspond with four promises that God made to Israel in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. I'm going to read that to you real quick. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And here are the four promises. One, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Two, I will deliver you from slavery to them. Three, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And four, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The four cups that people would drink as a part of the Passover corresponded with these four different promises. Now, at this point in the meal, the first two cups would have already been drank. That takes place earlier in the meal, uh, takes place before the breaking of the bread. After the breaking of the bread and the eating of the meal, the third cup is what would have been consumed. And sure enough, Luke, in Luke chapter 22, he tells us that after after they eat, that Jesus lifts up the third cup. And this third cup is called the cup of redemption. It was remembering this third promise. Again, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. 
Verse 23. And he, uh, Mark 14, 23. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Again, just, just let the weight of Jesus' claim here sink in for a moment. At this moment, Jesus is supposed to mention the redemption of God at the time of Passover and looking forward to a future redemption that God will one day bring. Jesus instead speaks of himself. As Jesus is talking about redemption, he instead speaks of himself. He says that the promise of redemption for God's people, he says that that is ultimately found in me. And then he explains how this redemption will come about. He says it is through his own blood, through the blood of our Passover lamb. Notice what Jesus calls his blood. He says it is the blood of the covenant. We've heard that phrase already this morning. Exodus chapter 24 is the only other phrase in the Bible where the phrase the blood of the covenant is used. When God seals his relationship with Israel, makes them his people and says, I will be your God forever. He seals it with the blood of the covenant. And now Jesus is making the exact same claim. He's making this new unbreakable covenant, this unbreakable promise with his people through his blood. Through the blood of the new covenant. It's not going to be something that comes through the blood of sheep or of bulls, but through his own blood, which has been shed on the cross. This is what the prophet Jeremiah tells us about as he looks forward to the future of this new covenant that is coming one day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenants that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Just gonna take a, a moment. As I was studying this passage this past week, the one thing that really hit me was just awe. Awe at what Jesus says here, that a, a night thousands of years ago on the second floor of just a random house in Jerusalem, a group of people are, are celebrating a meal that they have celebrated every year of their life. And in this house, Jesus pulls back the veil. At long last, this veil that's been concealing God's plan to redeem humanity 
from the very beginning. It's, it's been hidden. It's been mysterious. We haven't understood it. Jesus, in this moment, pulls the veil back and, and shows these people that this meal that they are celebrating in this moment, and really the, the entirety of the Old Testament, it points to him. It points to what he is about to do. The greatest act of deliverance that the people of Israel have ever known, Jesus says that's an echo of what he's about to accomplish. The unbreakable relationship where God says, Israel, you are going to be my people. Jesus says, that's an echo of what I am about to bring for those who have faith in me. This thing that the people of Israel have been longing for for millennia, that the Bible has been looking forward to from the very beginning. Jesus says, at long last, this is coming in me, that there will one day be a day where all of creation will be made right because of what I'm about to accomplish on the cross. And to me, what's even more inspiring, awe-inspiring, than just all of the Bible points to Jesus, which is pretty amazing in and of itself. So this promise isn't just for the, the Jewish people, it's for the many. Jesus tells us that his blood is poured out for many. A few chapters earlier, Jesus tells us in Mark chapter 10 that he will be a ransom for many. In Isaiah chapter 53, we see how out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressions. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus' blood would win the many, people from every language, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, by bearing their sins on the cross. This passage is an invitation for anyone to come to the table and to feast on the grace of God. I'm just, I don't, I'm in awe. So I consider this just absolute awe that Jesus would bear my sin that I might experience lasting deliverance. The text isn't over yet. Drinking the third cup, after you would drink it, it was tradition that right after you would drink it, you would actually pour the fourth cup. And the fourth cup would correspond with the fourth promise of Exodus chapter six and seven, this promise that God would be their people and or that they would be God's people and he would be their God, and traditionally this cup was associated with God's final victory at the end. When God's people would finally be vindicated, they would finally get to dwell with God forever. And after this cup was poured, then the family, those who were gathered together to celebrate the Passover, they would sing hymns, they would drink the cup, and then the celebration would be over. But Jesus does something differently, doesn't he? Verse 25. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So Jesus drinks 
from the cup of redemption. He passes it to his disciples. He declares that the final redemption is going to be found in his death. And then Jesus says that he will not drink the final cup. He won't drink that cup that's looking forward to that final redemption, that final lasting deliverance for God's people until his people get to taste it as well in the new creation. Because Jesus has a different cup that he has to drink first. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from then. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. For any of us to drink from the last cup. Jesus has to drink from the cup of God's wrath. Spurgeon once said, he must drink damnation dry. And after he does that, and because he does that, one day we will get to share that final cup with him in the new creation. If we come. If we come to the table and feast on the grace of God. To come to this table where God at last unveils his plan to, to save humanity totally and finally forever. And to come with awe and wonder at his plan. Come to this table to feast on, on the grace of God where where the Son of God offers himself up for us to establish a new covenant and everlasting relationship with anyone who would come. The question is, will, will we come? Will you come? Will you come to this table? This table is for the many who fall away and betray. I, I mentioned earlier the, the broader context of Mark reminds us of exactly who this table is for. It's for people who abandon Jesus, who fail Jesus completely and utterly. It's for people like me. That the table is for people like you. For those who among the many count themselves as though who need the grace of God and come to the table in order to feast on that grace. Come to the table and feast on the grace of God. I love the way Paul describes this new exodus, this new Passover that we have because of Jesus. He says this in Colossians chapter one. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, it is 
such an incredible gift that you have made a way for people like me to enter into your presence. That you have delivered me and hopefully everyone else here from the domain of darkness transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved son where redemption is found, where forgiveness is found. And if that's not true of anyone here this morning, God, I, I ask that, that this passage, that this invitation would lead to more people coming that those who don't know you would find who they are in you because of what you have done for us. And Lord, as we are about to approach this table and, and celebrate this meal, I pray that we would do it with awe, with wonder, with amazement, that we would do it with reflection on the significance of this moment, and that this would be a, an act of worship for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.